in a global industry where anything can happen, where mistakes can cost far more than dollars. One oil and gas sales expert, one HSE professional, and the greatest PPE provider on the planet must come together. Two men, one brand, one mission. Red Wings Oil and Gas HSE Podcast with Mark LaCour and Patrick Pister starts now. Hey, it's Mark LaCour, and this show is for everybody who has an interest in HSE in the oil and gas industry. Brought to you by Red Wing, the leaders in PPE, ensuring your people go home safe every day. Joining me today is my gregarious co-host, Patrick Pister. How are you doing today, Patrick? Doing well, Mark. How are you doing? Doing really well. And you know what, Patrick? We're very lucky. How's that? We are able to have John Doney back on the show again with the National Safety Council. That's right. Yeah, John, welcome back. Yeah, I think uh, the last episode went really well. I think we can, there's a lot more we can talk about. Thanks. Great to be back with you today. Yeah, and before we get into that, if you're listening to us, can you do us a favor? Leave us a review. It's the best way to support the show. It takes all of three minutes. And if you leave us a review, the next show I won't ask for you to leave us a review. I'll make a deal with you. So um, today, John, it looks like we're going to talk about a couple of things that Patrick actually has a lot of experience with. So Patrick, I'm going to kind of let you kind of jump into this. Yeah, we just wanted to, you know, we, we talked a lot about leading and lagging indicators last time with uh, with John. And I kind of wanted to jump into these two topics are pretty well related is, you know, the common hazards that we face in the oil and gas industry, and along with that contractor management. So, you know, with all the hazards we do have, how do you manage your own processes when you have third party contractors coming into your job site that are supposed to be following your policies and procedures, but how do you make sure? So I guess I'd kind of like to start with that, John, about, you know, how do you manage third party contractors? whether it's on your site or at a remote location, but working on your project? Yeah, it's, it's a huge challenge. And it's, it's not one that's, that's you know, confined to the oil and gas industry, although certainly you all feel it um, maybe more acutely than a lot of industries. There's been some studies out there showing you know, the, the growth in the contractor population you know, in worldwide in, you know, across all industries going up you know, 5, 10, 15% getting projected out. So there, there's just, it's, it's been increasingly an issue for everyone. We actually published a paper within the uh, Campbell Institute a couple years back around contractor management and around the maybe idealized life cycle for, for contractor management, that, it, that if everyone were doing everything the right way, you know, this is kind of how it would play out. So we, we studied the processes in place by a number of our member companies that, that tend to be you know, fairly high maturity in terms of safety. There's actually one uh, company in there from the oil and gas industry. And we looked at you know how they're managing contractors from you know from day one of you know let's let's pre-qualify these organizations and let's let's understand that they're fit to do work and how we make that decision to training and onboarding and then of course on to you know the on the job actual monitoring of the work and any kind of post work evaluation and what we kind of found is that most organizations that use a lot of contractors and you know most organizations in the oil and gas industry I would say that use a lot of contractors do a really good job, particularly at the first couple of steps of that life cycle. There are a lot of fantastic pre-qualification programs out there, whether they're internal within a company or whether they're external through a service provider that might be in that space. There's a lot of great training and onboarding that's, that's really aimed at getting people's attention and getting them to really think about life-critical rules and things of that nature. And where, where things tend to start to break down is on the regular monitoring of work, the ability to react and respond quickly when a situation arises because there's often a lot of um, distributed roles and responsibilities. You know, you might have a situation in which one organization owns the land or the, the project, another one is managing the project, 
A third one is doing, you know, subcontractor work on a particular piece of equipment or, you know, driving pile or doing something else. And then there's a fourth one that's coming in to, you know, monitor and test and verify. It's just, it's a, a nightmare of logistics. And so, you know, that's where we see a lot of that breakdown start to occur. And then, you know, after that, you get into that issue where, how does one part of the organization know an incident happened with X, Y, or Z contractor halfway across the country or halfway across the world? And what implication does that have on whether we hire that, that organization again? So the how is not an easy answer. It's very, very complex. And so we're on the lookout you know, continuously for, for good practice in that space and, and want to share what we're learning you know, just as much as people want to hear you know, what we've learned. So that's a continuing area of focus for us. Yeah, let's start at the beginning, I guess, then. So in my experience, you get a, you're having a contractor come out and you're dealing with a company. They may send you a resume and list of uh, qualifications you send over your requirements for them coming out, but the person hiring them may never see this contractor. They're going to, you know, head out to the, they're going to fly to the region. They're going to go out in a helicopter and then they're going to get on the rig or on the job site. I guess, what is the minimum standard for onboarding when you're thinking about the individual contractors themselves, not the company you're working with, but when the individuals come out, how do you make sure they know the rules, understand them, have all their PPE and follow your policies and procedures? So I guess what's, what's the one piece of advice or tip or tool you would use to, to do that onboarding process? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that you need to, I'll give you an example of what I've seen work well, which is that, you know, you, you can't really just let your contractors just kind of come on the site and start to do work. So even if they've already been pre-qualified and vetted, even if all the paperwork's already signed, even if they're, you know, they've, you've, you've looked at the programs and the systems that they have in place and their rates, you know, there still needs to be a human interaction with them that first day to make sure everything looks right. And, you know, the other thing that, that tends to be a danger is, you know, a lot of organizations that do contract work, you know, have a wide variety of individuals at different skill levels, different experience levels out there doing work day to day. And it's not always the same, you know, people that are going to be on your site on day one as they're going to be on your site on day 17. And so that's a continuing area of focus where, you know, a lot of organizations who hire contractors will say, well, yeah, of course, on day one, we get the A team and then maybe on you know, day 20, we get the C team. And, and how, do we, how do we take account for that? So, it, so it's really that, that human interaction, just as it would be if it's, if it's a member of your organization. I mean, you don't let a member of your team go, go do work that, that you don't know what they're doing and, and you're not aware of the risks and you're not sure that they're going to wear their PPE. Why would you do that for a contractor? So it's really about just applying that same level of you know, attention and care to the person. And I think you'll see that, that if, if you do that organizationally, you get the same level of respect and, and you know, buy-in from, from those folks as you would from you know, a member of your own workforce. Yeah, I like that, John. But you also, as you were talking, it started to remind me of, yeah, you may have uh, five different guys working on the project from that contractor come out in a, in a month's time, so their career is going to change up. But uh, you know, kind of a hidden hazard is if it's the same guy coming out, working day in, day out, but your, your company's crew changes. And they come out and the guy's been there for a month already and he knows the drill and he just kind of acts like he, you know, acts like he works there full time. I've seen that as become a, a hazard as well because they they're not being managed as closely because they're not the new guy on the rig anymore. It's the it's your company that is new out to the job site. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's actually it's I mean, that that's that's true, whether it's a contractor or not. But it's particularly interesting in the case where it is a contractor who has more experience than someone who comes on the site from from the host company. And definitely, I've, you know, I've seen, particularly on longer-term projects, that can be the case. And uh, it's really just a cultural issue that you have to pay attention to no matter where you are. You're going to get those folks who have seen, you know, think they've been there, done that, seen everything there is to see, and not realize that there might be a potential change. 
the other thing I think that's a third complicating factor, particularly in oil and gas, is you've got a lot of organizations that spend Monday on a Shell site, Tuesday on an Exxon site, Wednesday on a Chevron site, and you know the particular rules and procedures and policies are all similar and all intended to do similar things, but they're all a little bit different. And you know whether it's a particular piece of paperwork or whether it's you know a language thing, there's going to be those changes that that are hard for people to keep wrapped in their head. And so that's you know that's something particularly in oil and gas that that I see get brought up a lot. Oh, oh yeah, just just coming to a location choir. whether you. <laughs> Yeah, whether you whether you pull in or back into a parking space changes right. by by operator and yeah. mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. that's right. Yeah, and it's you know what, John, the thing is about that, but it is kind of a reoccurring theme here. It all really goes back to management, right? Is management aware and is management doing the right things to make sure that everybody on the job site, contractor, uh, employee, whatever, are, are doing things in a way that's safe? And it's kind of it's kind of interesting to hear that. You know, you see this outside of oil and gas because Patrick and I are kind of sheltered that this is our industry and this is, you know, <laughs> HSE is huge here. But it's also kind of refreshing to see that you're seeing the same problems in different industries and different verticals. You know, just so it's, it makes me kind of feel better <laughs> that it's not just us. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, and even if you, if you think about it, this is reflected, you know, we talked on the last episode about some of the big picture trends that are driving you know, changes in the data and, and what's driving injury and death. And, and you know, contractor use is, is one of those. And you think even about, you know, when you go get in an Uber or something like that, you know, after, you know when you get in a, an unfamiliar city, you're coming in for a conference or something like that, or you're starting a new job, you know, you're, you're kind of in that, you know, use of contractors there yourself. You're, you're using a contract workforce to get from point A to point B. And the risks associated with that contract workforce versus if Uber, you know, utilize those as full-time workers, it's just a, it brings a host of different issues and, and, and challenges. And in, you know, in manufacturing, in, in utilities, and in all sorts of industries, we're seeing you know, the same sorts of challenges with contractors that we are anywhere else. And it just speaks to you know, the nature of the workforce and the economic realities that, that organizations you know, go through that pendulum swing of having a larger contracted workforce, so you know, a larger internal workforce, and, and vice versa. And, and as that changes year over year, you get these same sorts of issues coming up over and over again. So pretty interesting to you know to see and and certainly i think as i said earlier in in oil and gas is probably the the prime case where you know we we see a lot of the contractor challenges come to a head just because of the size and scope of the the projects that that get worked on and the number of service providers that are that are part of the industry yeah you know that leads me into something that we've been talking about a good bit and that's it's actually a shortage of skilled labor in our industry and so I'm sure that must play a factor in it as well, because then you have people that are either working longer and maybe fatigue sets in, or maybe the contracting companies don't have the same quality of talent pool or experience to hire from or to pull in from. Yeah, there was a, I think it was a KMG survey a couple of years back that looked at the drivers behind increase of contract work in, in industry and lack of skilled workforce was, was a big one of those. And, you know, as organizations see that issue come up, and they continue to use contractors, what they're also doing is perpetuating that issue a little bit because they're not hiring, retaining, and, and developing unskilled workforce into skilled workforce. So I think as long as we're relying on a larger contract workforce, we're going to kind of always have that challenge. That's not a bad thing or a good thing. It's just a reality. You know, I'm not an advocate for whether you should have a certain percentage of contractors or a certain percentage of internal workers, but it's, it's something to certainly be aware of, you know, particularly if you're in oil and gas and you're going to go somewhere local and try to start up a project, you need to be aware of the fact that you're probably going to be dragging in a contract workforce from some other part of the world or the country to do a lot of the work that you want to do. So John, yeah, you brought up a point about the 
we, we started talking about common hazards in the oil and gas industry, but I guess you, you sparked my interest. What are some of the common hazards for new people to the oil and gas industry? I think, I think the old guard knows the look up and live and they know about rotating machinery, but they've been at it for a while. In your experience in the National Safety Council's data, what are some of the common hazards that you need to be on the lookout if you're brand new into the oil and gas industry? Yeah, I mean, I think these maybe apply to every industry, but you know, I think particularly to oil and gas is, you know, when you're, when you're the new guy, there's there's probably two big things driving you. One is you probably got a lot of training and and you probably feel fairly competent, but you don't know what you don't know. And and that that difference between what you think you know and what you really know is is something that can bite you. And that's kind of the the Dunning-Kruger effect of, you know, how competent you really are versus how competent you think you are. And so there's, you know, there's that issue of, you know, going on and being the new guy and feeling like I got all this training and I feel invincible. And, you know, that can be that can be a hazard. But I think maybe more often you come on to an oil and gas facility for the first time and you are incredibly aware of the hazards because you see all this process equipment around you. You're thinking, you know, this thing could probably kill me and you're probably right. You know, you're 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 you know, you may, may not have that level of head on a swivel where you're looking for things overhead all the time, but you're pretty keenly aware that you're in a dangerous environment. And what might get you at that point is, as you start getting a nerd in that culture, you get the people who have been there forever who tell you, you know, well, just do it this way, you'll be fine. You begin to lose that armor pretty quickly. You know, I, I'm in the position where I go out on, you know, site assessments, go talk to a lot of folks, and I'm always, you know, probably the most risk-averse person that's on the facility that day. I'm the most risk, risk you know, attuned person on the facility that day because I'm there for the first time. And it's really, it's really interesting, you know, how quickly a new worker becomes a, a seasoned worker, particularly in, a, in an industry where, you know, there's, there's a, you know, this, in, you know, kind of an ingrained culture of, you know, doing things the right way, getting up to speed, always executing on the job. So those, those, I think, you know, that, that push pull of, you know, how competent you are, how competent you feel and, you know, how, how risk tolerant you are are going to be the, the two biggest things for, for new workers. And in other industries as well, the same thing is true. OSHA, uh, a few years back, you know, had a big campaign about vulnerable workers and new workers. And we're looking at all of these times when, unfortunately, someone's first day on their job was their last day on their job. And a lot of times it comes down to, you know, they thought they had the right training, but really they didn't. And it was a gap in the system that allowed them to, to interact with something they shouldn't have or gone, gone and done something they, that, that, that they shouldn't have. And it's not the blame of the worker. It's really ultimately the fault of the system that, that allowed them to, to get to a point where they suffered an injury or were killed. So that's where my mind goes when I think about those common hazards on day one. You know, some of those don't change. Some of them do. But we've always got to think about that risk sensitivity issue when we're in, particularly in a process facility like an oil and gas site. Yeah. And if I can further cl- clarify for our audience, if you are new that you know, just because somebody is teaching you how to do something, which is, you know, you're supposed to be learning, but if something doesn't seem right, that's when you ask or you ask the question, you you point something out. Just a little anecdotal evidence of my own. One of the first tankers I was on, there was a, there was a fire extinguisher that was a little hard to get out of its cradle. It was underneath the handrail. And the guy that was showing me around showed me, oh yeah, you just got to angle it this way and it pops right out. Okay. Well, he's teaching me what to do right. And then, you know, not a, not a week or two later, we had an inspector come on and he stopped me and asked me about this handrail being over. I was like, oh, yeah, you just have to do it this way. And he asked me, well, if you were in an emergency or somebody new to that rig had to do that, would they know this? I said, well, no, they wouldn't because I didn't know it. But I was, I was so new. I was just being taught everything, writing stuff in my tally book, trying to, trying to keep up that I just took it at face value. I was like, oh, yeah, that's how you do it. 
But yeah, I think you you brought up a good point, John, about ask the questions. When you're new, you, you're trying to learn everything you can from the guys that have been there for a while. But if something doesn't sound right or you have a question, that's the time to to raise your hand and, and speak up. Absolutely. There's there's not enough that can be said about just being the one who lets himself ask what sounds like a stupid question. And and that's true in any in any industry, in any situation, but particularly true in safety, because what you don't know can can most certainly hurt you. Yeah, it's it's a hard thing though. I mean, when you're when you're first out there trying to learn everything, it's you don't want to be the the troublemaker, the the guy that's yep. raising problems, but that's sometimes what needs to be done. You need to just ask the questions, just get clarification. And if it's if it is the right way to do things, move on. If not, then you know, hopefully you've got a, a good organization and some good supervisors that are open to change. Yeah. Having having an organization that supports that kind of culture is really critical. I mean, you look at that on the highest level and you know, NASA tells the story of what happened, you know, to, to cause the the Challenger disaster back in the eighties. And it was really to them ultimately all about complacency. You know, they they the engineers that they should have been listening to were raising the the issue. And the culture was driving them down and was saying, you know, that's that's going to get us off budget. That's going to get us off time. We're not going to be able to launch as we intend. And, you know, it wasn't an unknown. It was a known. And it was really a cultural issue of, you know, even when you ask the question, you still got to hope that the that the culture at the organization is the right one to support you and to back you up. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's interesting you brought that up. So we, we, we run across this all the time, culture. Cultures and organizations, you know, either make their safety program great or it does the opposite. So what are, you, what are your thoughts around cultures and how it interacts with uh, health and safety? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I totally agree with that. There's the, you know, I think there's the adage that culture eats strategy for breakfast. And I think that's true in, in a lot of ways. You know, we, it's funny because we're, we're planning for, a, for an event we have coming up, our, our Campbell Institute Symposium in a month or so here. And, you know, we've got this panel of great speakers that's talking about, you know, what's kind of the next big thing in, in health and safety. And there's all sorts of perspectives on that. Is it is it about data? Is it about serious injury and fatality prevention? Is it about, you know, looking at technology and how it's going, how we can leverage it? And, you know, one, one of the speakers said, you know, well, I agree with all those things. Those are all big things, but those are tools. And, you know, when we, when we think about what really drives organizations, it's human beings and you know we have to go back to those those adages of leadership and culture that are really going to either enable us to to use these things wisely or not and so i think that you know that's the atmosphere of an organization and you can change the you know the temperature all you want you can change the the weather all you want in an organization but changing the climate in an organization is a lot tougher takes a lot longer and so you can change the tools you're using but if you're still using the same thinking around those tools then you're not going to get any different results or you're going to go backwards so you know, I would I would definitely side with those who who put culture before you know before process. But it's it's also that you need to have both. I mean, you can't if you, if you have the best culture but you don't know how to do things the right way, you have good intentions and bad results. So they're they're both important. I know that sounds like a bit of a non-answer, maybe, but you know, absolutely, uh, a, a good culture will get you far. And and not having that culture, it's it's not going to matter how hard you're pushing the ball up the hill. It's going to keep falling down. Yeah, and that's actually a chance you to give a little plug for the National Safety Council. So if companies have the right culture, but they don't know what to do, y'all would be a great organization to go talk to, wouldn't y'all be? Yeah, no, absolutely. We have we have all sorts of resources. You know, a lot of them are freely available that you can go grab kits and, and uh, tools that you can go use. So you can visit our website, nsc.org. If you want to visit my neck of the woods, I'm on thecampbellinstitute.org. That's our part of the organization that I'm with. Lots of uh, free things you can go access. We have libraries of content. And certainly don't hesitate to reach out to us. We love talking to folks who have a burning question. I mean, that's how I love to spend my day. So, uh, so please feel free. 
Yeah. And uh, John, it's um, we're about to get close to winding down the show, and it's time for our Red Wing Safety Tip of the Week. Do you have a tip for our audience? Sure. Yeah. Actually, this one comes to me from, a, from one of our members who, who had a really interesting experience. They, they went on a family vacation to an Airbnb somewhere, I think, remote in Ireland it was. And, uh, you know, most of us are kind of used to, if we travel for business, we're in a hotel, and that hotel has done a lot of due diligence on making sure that, that basic things are covered. And what happened was, is it was really scary. He woke up in the middle of the night um, in a panic and realized that his, his wife and children were, you know, essentially passed out. And, and he was kind of looking around trying to figure out what was going on. And he thought maybe in the back of his head, sounds like maybe I'm getting carbon monoxide poisoning, you know, maybe something's going on. So he went and cracked the window and got some fresh air and it turned out, yep, that's what it was. The, the, the building was not properly ventilated and uh, CO2 had built up and, and you know, he was you know, in imminent danger. Thankfully, he and his family ended up being fine. But the takeaway there is when you're on travel at an Airbnb, don't have the same expectations you would have of a hotel chain. And, and that's just true for anything you do when you travel. When you're out there in the wild with, with your family or by yourself, you know, that, those are, there are things that we take for granted that we shouldn't always. Yeah, that's a great trip. I, um, I actually, the first time I went to Norway, all of my peers forgot to tell me that the way you regulate the temperature in a hotel is you crack the window because they intentionally keep it too hot. And so I'm in, in Norway where it's, you know, minus three degrees Fahrenheit and I'm sweating my butt off in the hotel for the whole week I'm there. And then on the end of the trip, somebody's told me that. It's like, I wish you would have told me when I first came in, but that's, that's a great trip. You really should not take anything for granted, especially, no, no, yeah, yeah, especially if you get outside the U.S. So, John, this has been really good. It's um, we've, it's great having you on the show for the second time. We, um, we're definitely going to have you on the show in the future. If people, and you already rattled off the website, but I think we're going to do it again. If people want to find out more about the National Safety Council, where should they go? Sure, and, and glad to be back. It's uh, www.nsc.org, and uh, please feel free to, to go on there and grab all the great resources we have available. Yeah. And uh, Patrick, you know, we, we started talking about the common hazards in the oil and gas industry, which we didn't even really get into. So maybe that's another show somewhere down the road that we kind of, cause I would, I would actually like to talk through that as well, because, you know, I haven't been offshore in 15 years. I haven't been in a refinery probably actually, that's not true. I was in a refinery last year, but you know, the workforce has, the workplace has changed in oil and gas, like it's changed everywhere else. It'd be kind of cool to have uh, go through what's common hazards, you know, right now in, in 2018, I think it'd make a good for a good show. Yeah, I, I think you're right, Mark. That'd be a good topic because I think some certain hazards have become more folklore than anything. The I mentioned earlier in the episode here today, look up and live and talking with people, even when I was offshore, that everybody takes that to mean don't stand under a load. But I've seen a crane boom fail. And to me, look up and live means don't even get under the crane boom. A few years ago, that, that boom fell in New York City and fell down to the street and hit all those cars. So like I said, the the old adage is look up and live, but everybody thinks it just means stay out from under the load. But you really need to be out from under that crane boom because anything can go wrong and that, that thing can come crashing down. So, yeah, I think that's a good, uh, definitely a good topic for another show. Yeah. And, and audience, if you have something you want us to talk about, you'd like us to explore, if you have a company or a person you'd like us to interview around HSNE, let us know. We love your input, your family, right? We're, we're all just one big family sitting here on the microphone. All right, John, I know you got stuff to do. I'm going to let you go. Once again, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's great having you, and we look forward to having you again. And we need to do our Red Wing bag uh, spot. So if you'd like to win this really cool offshore Red Wing bag, it's really easy. Go to redwingshoes.com forward slash podcast. That's redwingshoes.com forward slash podcast. Enter your information, and you could be one of the lucky ones walking around with this really cool bag. Ready to get out of here, Patrick? Yeah, let's do it. All right. So, folks, don't be afraid to give up the good to go for the great. Y'all be safe out there. 
Tune in next week for another exciting episode of Red Wings Oil and Gas HSC Podcast, a production of the Global Oil and Gas Network. Learn more from Mark LaCour at modalpoint.com. Connect with Patrick Pister at leanoilfield.com. From Houston to London.